1: I'm Carrie Charles and I want to welcome you to today's episode of 5G Talent Talk. I am super excited to have with me today Paul Fioravanti. Did I say that right?
2: Yes, you said it perfectly. Thank I you. I love
1: that name, Fioravanti. He's the CEO and managing partner of Corval Partners. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Carrie.
1: So let's get right into it. I wanna hear more about Corval Partners, your services, what you do. I mean, I, I just, I'm so excited that you're here because I think so many people today need to hear this message.
2: Well, again, thank you for having me. And the quick story of Corval Partners is that the firm was begun 25 years ago in Tampa by my late partner, Jim Malone. Jim passed away last year. Unfortunately, we lost him but we've not lost the shadow of his great leadership. And Jim probably is the only person that I'm aware of that ever was the CEO of six Fortune 500 companies in six different industries. And the amazing thing about Jim is just his humility. He was just a a super guy and really helped so many people, not just with business lessons, but with life lessons. So I was thankful to begin working with Jim about 10 years ago. And we're a, I don't really like the phrase boutique firm, but we're a smaller management consulting and advisory firm. We've got about 35 subject matter experts that work in a a range of different capabilities as uh, interim managers, whether they be CEO, CFO, COO roles, or other subject matter expertise areas such as IT, human resources, leadership training, cybersecurity. There's a mix of as you know, mix of business challenges that even smaller businesses today are facing. In terms of my involvement, I've been involved in about 70 situations in about 35 industries. And one of the things that you learn when you've had that kind of broad experience is that every industry thinks that it's really unique and special, but there are a lot more common denominator issues that affect businesses. Even size-wise, sometimes it's easier to fix a larger business than a smaller one.
1: You know, so I thought that was interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show, because you work in so many different industries, and I know that it's valuable for leaders to get insights from different industries to pull that into telecom. But I do know that you've also served a lot of clients in the telecom space. So who is your, let's say, typical telecom client?
2: Well, beyond telecom, well, let me take a step back. So most of the work that we do is in two verticals or two areas. One is manufacturing, the other is services. And in the services realm, we have probably worked on 25 or 30 trade contractors, with almost half of them being telecom or wireless or related communications contractors. And to answer your question, I I think most commonly it's a contractor that hits a certain size plateau, and we see that for example there there could be a contractor that's profitable at one or two million revenue they scale up to ten, they start to have problems, or they go from say twelve or fifteen up to thirty million in revenue, they start to have issues and I think what happens is uh, the contractors get lost along the way, and sometimes the you know, the, the business and the clients and the people, even the managers that get you to a certain level, they are not the people that will get you to the next level. And the challenges that typically emerge in the telecom contracting space, I think the number one is very thin margin work and the contractors not truly knowing what their cost structure is. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a temptation to fall into the idea of bidding a job on gross margin For example, in fact, we have an article about it. It's called The Gross Margin Trap. But the idea is that a project manager said, Well, you know, this job, it was a telecom job. We bid the job for 10,000. Our cost is six. Well, we made four. But he didn't, he forgot about the other half of the income statement where below direct and indirect materials costs, you have things like company overhead, insurance, that sort of thing. So I think the greatest thing that a contractor can do to ensure uh, profitability is really manage the relationship between fixed costs and variable costs. And one of my sayings is always that uh, fixed costs are the enemy of profitability. And when a contractor grows and their customer is telling them, well, you guys need to ramp up because we have all this work for you and go out and hire people and buy trucks and all that kind of stuff. That's a very tricky spot to be in. And without good job costing, they can really find themselves going down a rabbit hole.
1: Yes, yes, I agree. And, And that's why sometimes we will suggest to our clients to use contractors so they don't have those fixed costs. Well, at least, you know, they're temporary. So I know you talked a little bit about the problems that you solve. Can you maybe discuss a case study or a success story or two from your telecom clients?
2: Sure, I think candidly, there are many more challenging situations where the telecom contractor maybe has gotten off track with profitability. And one one particular company comes to mind and just to put it, in terms of impactful numbers, we were called in at a point in time where they had actually grown significantly year over year, but their Mm -hmm. controls had gotten so bad that they were just sort of lost in the weeds. And I remember the numbers, this was in, I think it was 2016. So year over year, the company went from say 24 to 32 million revenue. So they did an additional 7 million, 8 million in revenue. And what we did was we isolated the additional work that they did that that period. And we broke it down and looked at it as if that was like an individual P&L income statement. And what we found was that after doing almost $8 million in revenue, there was a $1,700 profit contribution. And that tells you that all that additional business really was a distraction. So the the challenge the company had was they started just throwing resources at problems, rather than what we like to to do is, you know, I have called the three Ms, map, measure, and modify. So map out what's happening, measure, output, production, margin, you know, what are the KPIs of your business? If it's not measurable, it's not a KPI. And in the case of this company, their idea was, well, we're just going to get the latest software, we're going to, you know, have a project management software, we're going to have a, you know, a, a progress tracking software and they had i think it was they started with quickbooks which worked fine then they went with uh, another platform timberline or sage that they really could not support so they started adding adding all these technologies and software platforms and everything they just sort of lost sight you know they it was mm-hmm. it's kind of like flying a a plane in the dark with with no lights on the, in, the instrument panel they just right. had no idea where they were, where the horizon was. And that's a pretty common problem with companies as they grow. They just don't really understand. The two most important things in business are dollar sources and dollar uses. You need to know where the money's coming from, and you need to know where the money's going. And as basic as that sounds, I mean, I, I was a CEO of a $350 million pharma company for a year and turn that around. And this was run by pharma veterans and they they were losing money. They had no idea on 30 million wow. a month how they would make money. It's not always just again industry experience or hiring the people to check the box. It's the hard work and the grind of getting in the trenches and looking at margin, looking at data, understanding where you're making money, where you're generating losses. It's so critical. Yeah.
1: Yes, and you do uh, quite a few turnarounds, right, in your work.
2: Yes, we do. Most of our practice is turnaround restructuring, but we focus on what I call the three its of why people hire us. It's grow it, fix it, exit. And those are typically things that are motivated by the need to make a, a change. It's a transformational plateau or it's a point in time where the company has an event, right? There's usually a significant emotional or focusing event that happens. And it might be the accountant does the year-end financials and said, hey, you guys are bleeding. Or it may be that they run out of cash, which happens fairly frequently. So there is something that motivates needing to make a change and they need to either grow or fix or in many cases exit And exits can be great. They can be very profitable and very opportunistic. Sometimes they unfortunately are motivated by the need to get out because a bank or lender is pressuring them. Uh, Maybe they violated a borrowing covenant. There's some, again, some variable that's motivating them to, to make a change and seek an exit.
1: Got it. What are some common mistakes that you see companies make or, or leaders make? I know there's probably a very, very long list and not just necessarily in telecom, but, but you know, in, in general that, you know, you, you start working with a company and you say, okay, yes, I've seen this a hundred times.
2: Well, one mistake that we don't fall into or trap that we try trying to fall into is even if it looks like a situation that we have seen before, we, we can't typecast it and we can't generalize because There are no two situations that are alike. So what we do is is what the company should do, and that is collect objective data and look at what's really happening in the business. But I would say a, a common trap that businesses fall into is they think that as they're growing, that it will solve a multitude of sins. But the truth is that growth consumes cash. It costs money to grow. And I think a lot of businesses don't realize that. We have worked with, I think we're on four companies that have been on Shark Tank in one way, shape, or form. Either were turned down, one, or somewhere in the middle. And as they're growing, it's one thing to get an initial capital investment or for any business to get an initial line of credit or something. But there are times where you hit a wall on growth. And It's very tempting to run out in in this industry, in telecom. It's very tempting to run out and hire all your friends and hire everybody you know. And time and again, I've seen this play of, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Frank is the project manager and, you know, Joe is the the engineering guy and we're going to bring him aboard and he's only looking for X and he needs a new truck and he's going to bring all this work with him and he's got the relationship with, insert name of carrier here. And that usually doesn't happen which leads us to the concept of, of the cultural challenges of the industry. And uh, I've run yeah. several specialty contracting companies, either as a, a COO or a CEO, everything from, again, <laughs> pharmaceuticals to manufacturing, but several companies in the construction and services space. And what's unique about telecom and wireless, it's got an industry culture, that is very mm-hmm. challenging compared to other industries. And if you talk with anybody that works in multiple verticals, telecom communications, utility services, power plant, energy in general, renewables, each one of those verticals has a a discrete and, and distinct culture. But wireless is, is certainly an interesting one, to say the least.
1: Yes, I agree. So I'm curious, though, could you go a little deeper there? And what does make it different?
2: Again, I, I think what, if you go back to the evolution of the industry, when you think about some of the early companies that were putting cell towers up in the, in the late 80s, you think back to companies like Metro Mobile, Bell Atlantic, there were some of the early companies, even though some of the tower codes like you know Crown and those companies had a very different Income statement different margin at the time you could you could put up a cell tower if you were a contractor you' making a lot of money at that time, even on the engineering side, a set of drawings was maybe eight thousand dollars, and then a couple of years later, you were allowed you know seventeen hundred and fifty dollars so the margins got tighter, and there was upward pressure on the cost of just being in business and in cert- certain northeastern states, the workers comp insurance premiums, general liability, excess liability, and now other things that have added on like cybersecurity, employment practices, liability. So the cost of doing business has gone up. The margins have come down and it's made the industry very challenging because with reverse auction pricing, matrix pricing, all the things going on in the industry, it makes it very difficult to make any money if you do not have control over every single penny and dollar. Mm -hmm. And again, I think your business is the future because in the industry, they've learned that flexible staffing is the key. Again, what I said earlier, fixed costs are the enemy of, of margin. And I've always felt that the ideal business model in the wireless contracting space or wireless communications infrastructure space is to have flexible staffing and what companies don't do enough of is they don't, and we've seen this time and again, they do not develop relationships at a higher level in the organization. Mm-hmm. For example, if I'm running contractor co. and I'm at the mercy of the market manager and God only knows, you know, who's knocking on his door and, and what they're offering him. It's an interesting industry from that perspective. But our advice to clients is always elevate your relationship in the organization. And for example, if, if a contractor is working for Verizon and they've never presented to Verizon corporate, or if they're working for Ericsson and they, they don't even know where Plano, Texas is and have never mm-hmm. been there, that's a problem. That's a ticking time bomb because they don't have that, that air cover in the, in the business relationship. And you should do that in any industry. You should always elevate the level of your relationship. But beyond that, a common trap that contractors will fall in is they'll, they'll get behind paying their subs. And next, next thing you know, the sub is knocking on the door of, of the GC or knocking on the door of the, the tarico or the turf vendor. And once you've kind of eroded that reputation, you're on a slippery slope. And again, okay. there's always another guy that's willing to kind of come along and, and, and take the work from you. So there isn't a lot of loyalty. It's a thin margin business. Cost controls and just management controls in these companies is typically not great, and again, just because they're big or even in some cases public, it doesn't mean they're good. Mm -hmm. It just means they're big. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And what's interesting about culture too is uh, you know we've all heard this Peter Drucker quote for years: Mm -hmm. "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." The one that I learned from Jim is, you know, culture is the least or is the, is, is the behavior that you tolerate, like the worst behavior that you tolerate? I said that wrong. Culture is the worst behavior that you tolerate in an organization. And that happens at any level. So if it's an executive behavior or if it's a, a lower level employee behavior, and what's the worst thing that you do that's acceptable, whether it's the service you provide or it's something that happens internal to the organization, that's your common denominator. And mm-hmm. and that's your baseline for what sets the company culture and what sets
1: the tone. Wow, that was powerful. And I, I hope everyone really took notes there because it's, what did you say the worst? Uh, say it one more time because this is- Culture worst, is the
2: worst behavior that you tolerate.
1: That you tolerate, okay, great. So I have a company and I've got, let's say, 80% of my people are just engaged, and, you know, connected and passionate about the company. And then I've got 20%, let's say 10% that are medium and 10% that are disengaged. So that 10% is who I need to pay attention to. And I have to elevate that 10%, right?
2: Correct. Correct. Okay. And some of them may not make the trip. Candidly, some of them are not on what we call the traveling team. Uh, <laughs> some, of them just won't, right. some of them just won't make right. it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it again, I, I think it's, there are a lot of variables that form people and how they behave in organizations. And it's sort of like, you know, you, you have this culture that you enforce in your organization and that you cultivate, and you're trying to take care of your people so that they're loyal to you, that it's a retention tool, that most of all, they're happy. It's a profitable experience for them to be there. Maybe there's some share there's an ESOP plan, there's a profit sharing or something. So there's a reason why they want to stick around, presumably. And the challenge with that now is loyalty is in, is in short supply. There are a lot of people that, and I don't know if it, I don't, I'm not sure how it correlates to the pandemic. I've heard about the great resignation and everything else like everybody else has, but I don't really understand it. And the question remains, where are they going so there's, there's definitely a churn, and there's a reason that mm-hmm. people are not sticking. But that's not necessarily bad, because if they are not the right people in the role, th- then they shouldn't be there, right? And, and one of the books we always recommend is Jim Collins' Good to Great. You've heard the story mm-hmm. about the right people in the right seats on the right bus. And that is definitely a causal, I would say, an independent variable of, of the outcome of culture, right? So if, if you're bringing the right people into the organization, there's a collective learning and development that happens. And the assumption of that is that the organization should get better. They should be better at managing stakeholders. Their clients, organizational clients, are stakeholder. So mm-hmm. if you're falling on your face constantly with Ericsson, Nokia, Black & Veatch, Verizon, at and whoever it is, then there's something seriously wrong. And you have to okay. take that feedback and... It's sometimes as simple as, again, a high-level connection between the CEO of the contracting company and the highest level that they can get to within the customer relationship to say, can we meet and can you tell me what we can do better? I was in a situation where this was a Massachusetts wireless contractor that was probably one of the worst managed companies I've ever seen. And we actually had to go to the client and ask them what we had not built. And we found out that we missed almost a million five in billing. That's pretty embarrassing when you, your wow. client tells you that, by the way, I know you guys are struggling financially, but maybe you should bill the million five that we owe you.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah. But again, it happens all the time. And again, I, I don't mean to you know, be critical of the industry because every industry can get better. Every manager can get better. We can all get better at what we do. But again, it's what culture is tolerated in this idea that, well, I mean, that's the way we've always done it, or that's the way the industry works. There's always an opportunity to change it. Quick story. So uh, in doing the pharma turnaround, we had a site in uh, in Puerto Rico that was a legacy Merck site. And the employees there were struggling because uh, the, the future of the site was uncertain. It was only operating at 25 or 30 percent capacity. And What I saw the solution to be was, let's get more volume. We're manufacturing a product for Merck. Let's go to Merck, sit down with the senior manager and say, look, this site is not sustainable at the current volume. If you can give us a larger share of global volume, then we'll be more efficient with the way we operate, then you still have a supplier, we're still in business, we keep all the employees, we operate, and we are profitable and sustainable. The sustainability issue is a critical one because if a business is not operating properly, then that's a downstream risk of all the way up to the tarico or the turf vendor because they don't want those contractors and materials vendors coming back saying, hey, I was never paid or company goes out of business. That's too much of a risk to bear
1: yes you mentioned about you know the telecom industry and telecom companies and how challenging it is but to me the great ones will rise above and they'll stand out the, the the companies that really know how to manage and succeed in this climate that we're in today which is very different like you said than it was even two years ago or five years ago so i i really feel like that they will they will rise to the top and you know i'm i'm well i'll talk about that a little bit later but i wanted to go in a little bit deeper into the you know the workforce challenges that you're seeing with your clients i mean we know you know we know there's not enough people and there's retention issues and you know everybody wants more money and there's just so many challenges but are you seeing, you know, what are you seeing when you're, when you go into a company that, that are, you know, some common challenges that leadership is, that leaders are going through right now? And then also, what are you recommending to them right now? What strategies?
2: It's a great question. It's a question that cuts across all industries. And it's a question, a question that cuts across all size organizations. And I think you, you know, if, if data has shown us any, anything, it's that people are not motivated exclusively by money because mm-hmm. yeah. there are many well paid people that leave jobs for some other reason and you mm-hmm. have to really dig down into you know what do people like about the organization what do they not like about the organization so retention comes in many forms and flavors in some cases it's some kind of a share program where they're sharing profit maybe it's again an esop or stock sharing or in other cases, it's flexibility. They like the ability to work from home, or they like the ability to kind of figure out you know, when they can take personal time off. So there are other variables. I think healthcare is a tricky one. There are a lot of companies that when things get tight, they really start to get aggressive with how much of a share that they ask employees to pay on healthcare. So that can be a reason why retention suffers. But I think generally people want to feel, and this is going to sound like a simplification, but it's true. People want to feel like they're part of something, that they're building something, that they matter. And morale, again, is, is driven by many independent variables, but inclusiveness is a critical one. And I don't envy the job of a human resources manager in any size organization now because, their job has gotten so complex. And there are so many, there are compliance issues that are driven by regulations and laws, but there are also what I call expectations compliance. And that is, you know, the company down the street or the company that my friend works for or the company that my, you know, significant other or or neighbor or somebody works for, you know, is offering this. Or, you know, they're talking about things like ESG. They're talking about things like, you know, just general corporate responsibility. So what's Mm -hmm. happened uh, in the last, I think, 10 years is people as employees identify with values. And if there's a value system gap between how the organization that they work for performs and behaves versus what their values are, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And honestly, sometimes there there aren't any values. There are people that just want a paycheck. They want to clock out at 5.01 and go home. That's fine. Mm-hmm. There are other people that, you know, have 12 hours of work to do in, in eight hours, and they want somebody to say, well, we understand what you're doing and how hard you're working, and, and here's what we're going to do for you. Again, recognition is, is a critical one. Right now, it is certainly the most atypical time that I've lived through in my business career and there are a lot of things that cannot be explained but this this great resignation i think if you really peel back the data what you will see is it's a lot of churn in younger brackets of workers and it's not it's not necessarily full-time employment either so you could have a bunch of people that are jumping from you know working to target to working to home depot to you know working to wherever which is, has been the case with my sons where they've you know, they're college age, so they're working retail typically. And, and I don't know if, you know, that's, a that's you know, counted in the stats, but there's definitely a, a lot of movement among what I would call the $15 to $20 per hour jobs because there are a lot of choices in the market. Not everybody can, can jump in a C-level job as quickly as they can in um, an entry-level job. But again, I think ultimately a company has to make it clear that they value employees as a group of stakeholders as much as they value other groups of stakeholders like customers, shareholders, regulators, et cetera.
1: You know, I I often say that we are in the human era of work where employees are at the center of everything. And I do agree with you. I think the human resource professionals are really some of the most important people in a company right now because everything is about people. And I know that I speak to so many leaders and I was just speaking, I did a presentation last week on, you know, culture and everyone is, you know, a lot of leaders are saying, gosh, I don't know. I don't know what to create. I'm at a loss for, you know, how do we change our culture? What do we do? I mean, is it something that we're doing wrong right now? And how do we make it different, better for this? Again, world we're living in, whether it's post-COVID or just this new world. So have you have you done, let's say, culture turnarounds? And if so, what were some of the steps that you took that other companies can take right now?
2: In several situations where I've come in as a an interim executive and and by this stage of, of my career, you know, titles don't mean anything to me. So but if okay. if I go in as a whatever I am, interim interim general manager, interim CEO. One of the first priorities for me is to meet everybody. And with one of the big organizations I turned around had 2,700 employees. But when you break it down into site visits and you're talking to groups of employees in 40, 50, you can kind of tick them off and you get a sense of who's doing what and you get a lay of the land organizationally. But beyond that, any CEO also needs to spend the time in front of every customer in front of every regulator in front of every critical stakeholder situation vendors so the the job of management is you know remember the old saying management by walking around that's also management by driving around flying around it's management by getting in somebody's face and having a conversation with them where you are caring and empathetic. And I think where most senior executives fail, in my opinion, and this was the case, I think, with a couple of larger turnarounds, the the senior management was elitist. The senior management was not uh, empathetic. They're very low on EQ. And they just, honestly, they just don't like people and care about people. And that's like a horrible place to be in. And I don't I, understand yeah. why somebody doesn't understand that as a senior executive, you have to be like Jim always used to say, POMC, plan, organize, motivate, control. And the motivation piece is critical to to get people to, to provide the desired outcome, right? You need them to do their jobs. One of the the best things that a senior executive can do or a company can do is sit And talk, and I realize that's been a challenge over the last two years, but having a very simple town hall meeting where you can have a conversation with, you know, among each other and feel compelled to discuss things in the open without fear of reprisal or retribution, I think it's important to have those candid conversations. And I will be the first one to do that in my role to say, what can we do better? What aren't we doing well? And employees will tell you, they, they, do not, they do not hold back. They will tell you, uh, and it might be as simple as details matter, right? Well, we used to have bottled water delivered to the cafeteria and somebody forgot about that. and We haven't had bottled water. Okay, well, how does that happen? If we're forgetting bottled water, what else are we forgetting? So details matter. And if you're doing your job right as a senior executive, then you're doing a lot more listening than you are talking.
1: Mm. Absolutely brilliant. It's a new time. I mean, there's been a shift and I call it, you know, even a culture revolution. I mean, it's, it's just, it's shifted and we've never been here before. I don't think, you know, any of us as as leaders, like you said, has ever been here before. And I think it's more important now than ever to have trusted advisors. Now, I I have a trusted advisor. I have an advisory firm that is helping us grow and scale at Broadstaff. And in fact, I've got a few and then I've got coaches and I've got other people that I lean on. And it's invaluable because like I said, when we are trying to navigate something that we've never navigated before, we need outside perspective and we need information as leaders to be able to say okay what what's this person doing over here and what's this person doing and you know we need that and i know that that, that's something that that you provide who is your let's say your ideal client Corval?
2: i always joke and say our ideal client is one that is going to Listen to us because there are, you know, a lot of people that want advisors, but they don't want the advice. And it's very easy to take advice, but it's very difficult to change. And one of our long-term clients, been with us for over four years now, is one that I think fits that fits that description. It's I'm not I don't have a problem telling you the name of the company. It's Naples Soap Company. It's a very fast growing retailer. They're on, they have a great website. They do a great direct to consumer business. They're on Amazon. By the end of the year, they'll probably have 20 stores in Florida. And we've been working with them, as I mentioned, since 18. And in that time, the business has doubled. Profitability has gone up by a multiple of eight. I'm not talking out of school because they are a publicly held company. And we assisted them along with securities attorney and another capital advisory group to bring them through the reverse merger process and turn them into a public public company. But I think Deanna Wallen, who is the CEO of Naples Soap Company, is one of the best CEOs that I've worked with, irrespective of company size. And I tell her all the time she could run a four or five, six hundred million dollar business very easily because she's she doesn't have a problem admitting what she doesn't know. And she's always been fine with hiring advisors and subject matter experts as needed or on retainer to help her shape the business because every day things change Mm -hmm. and you can get into some very uncomfortable corners if you don't have experience in a certain situation. What what we're able to bring or people that do what we do, there are larger firms than us, of course. But I think the the advantage of having a different set of eyes externally is the objectivity, what we call objective perspective. It helps you see things that you don't see, that you don't understand. Yeah. I tip my hat to you, Carrie, for you know hiring advisors. And I mean, the growth of your company has been amazing. Again, but I, I would say that that is a shadow of the leader with you because you're okay saying hey i need help or i need a different yeah. set of eyes and that's very wise uh, a lot of companies uh, can find themselves in difficult circumstances just because they don't do that or they're not willing to you know spend the money right you know jim always yeah. used to jim Malone my partner at one point was the ceo of a company called facet automotive which became pure later and they had the fram oil filter brand and there was a famous ad campaign In the 70s and 80s for fram and basically the they're interviewing the mechanic in the shop and he says you can pay me now or you can pay me later and it's the idea that you know a person wouldn't spend fifty dollars for the oil change but they'll spend five thousand to put a new engine in the car and it's maintenance is always far less expensive than repair and that comes in different forms so it's easier Boys. to stay in and grow your business than it is to have a catastrophic meltdown that you need to, you know, have a have a crisis situation in.
1: Hmm, that is so true. You know, I always say that there's things that we know, and there's things that we don't know, and then there's, there's things that we don't know that we don't know. And I think as leaders, that that's where we really go wrong because there's things we don't know that we don't know, and we're missing it. And it actually could be hurting our businesses. So Paul, I mean, I could talk to you all day. This is just so engaging. And I, I love this conversation. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Tell me where a little, what's your website? Where can you be reached?
2: Sure. I'm happy to help. Our website is Corval. There's no U in there. Everybody always wants to put a U in there. It's dot com. Everyone asks what the name means. Uh, Jim came up with it and it means core values, even though there's a Q on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the core values of our company have always been profit, growth, integrity, and fun. And that was really what Jim was all about. In fact, later this year his book is coming out and it's called P plus F plus G. Anyway, it's security is mm-hmm. is the, you know, the the quotient on the formula, because Jim's idea was if you had all these things happening in an organization, or within you as a manager, you had security, and companies need to be profitable, they need to grow, the employees and the stakeholders have to be having fun, and it has to be done on a foundation of integrity.
1: Mm. You know, Jim sounds like a wonderful man, and I'm sure he's going to be listening to this podcast. He was an amazing. I'm <laughs> so <woman>. proud. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, Paul, this is this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing so much and, and and being transparent and and giving and being generous. And I hope that we can have a follow-up maybe in 12 months from now and see where we are in the
2: world. Thank you so much, Carrie. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and hopefully again, hopefully something that I've shared has been helpful to your audience. And uh, I'm always happy to help people. Even if it's not an engagement situation for us, we have a lot of conversations to help people through challenging situations. So I'm happy to do that.
1: Yes, you do. And you've helped me as well. So thank you, Paul. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you, Carrie.
1: Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until
1: next time.